In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Lubna Bayani is our guest this week on Money Tales. Lubna is a globetrotter. For most of her marriage, she followed her husband from country to country, wherever his job took them. Recently, they turned the tables. Lubna relocated her family to Kenya for an exciting position she wanted to take. This latest move has caused the couple to go deep into money conversations, which she shares with us today. Let me tell you a little more about Lubna. She's a multicultural and multilingual global development and public health specialist with a focus in sexual and reproductive health. Lumna is currently head of external relations and advocacy for International Planned Parenthood Federation in Africa. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics you'll hear in this episode. First, how even the cost of education is negotiable. Second, the importance of getting financially naked with your significant other. And third, how setting clear and specific goals can motivate you to save money. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Lubna Bayani. Hey, Money Tales listeners. We're excited for another great money conversation. Before we get there, I have to talk to Sandy about something. What's that, Cammie? I was walking home from dropping off the girls at school this morning with my husband, and we've noticed just in the last year in particular, so many homes turning over and we're in an area where there's newer, younger families and people who had lived here for a long time selling and cashing out at high prices. And my husband mentioned how high the mortgage rates are these days as I was commenting that I've noticed fewer signs. Yeah, they've gone up quite a bit. It makes it harder for new home buyers who don't have all cash to put down to purchase a home. Yeah. What are clients saying about mortgage rates? Are they even bringing it up in conversations? Well, interestingly, as 2022 has continued, we've seen fewer home transactions overall. We saw a lot in the pandemic, a lot of purchases, especially of second homes, and in some cases, third homes. Across client conversations about whether to use all cash or to utilize a mortgage, many of our clients are in the envious position of being able to afford a home without having to borrow. But for those who do need to borrow money to purchase a home, it's always interesting to look across the mortgage rate spectrum. So the most popular mortgage here in the US is the 30-year fixed. You lock that rate in for 30 years and you never need to think about it again, except in a high interest rate environment like we're in right now for mortgages 
It can sometimes be better to look at fixing interest rates for shorter periods of time, especially for people who are buying that first home that they don't expect to own for a full 30 years. You can get lower rates if you lock in for maybe a five or a seven year period or even three. So there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of decisions that come into choosing a mortgage. And it's helpful to talk with a financial advisor or mortgage lender or friend, family members. Anyone who's had a lot of experience with mortgages can be helpful, especially for folks who are purchasing their first home and learning about mortgages for the first time. There are choices and options and quite a few. If you only have one lens, 30-year fixed, it's a flawed assumption that there's only one choice. So I appreciate you highlighting that. Yeah, there's tons out there and there's a lot of different considerations. So don't rush into a mortgage decision. Make sure you get yourself really well-educated and think about it in the context of your own financial plan and what's most important to you. Thanks, Sandy. And welcome our guest today on Money Tells, Lubna Bayani. Really wonderful to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Would you introduce yourself and provide a few pivotal moments that occurred in your life that really impacted who you are today? Absolutely. So I'm Lubna. I just celebrated my 46th birthday here in Nairobi on Friday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. And I have to say I'm loving my 40s. I think it's a time when one figures out who one is and cares less about what other people think. (laughs) So I'm just really loving my 40s. And pivotal moments in life were growing up in Pakistan for the first 18 years of my life, and then taking two suitcases and traveling alone from Karachi to Montreal, where I went to university at McGill University, but not realizing what a pivotal moment that was. People from my background don't do those things. If you grow up in a middle-class neighborhood in Karachi, Pakistan, you most probably stay in that neighborhood and you do an undergraduate degree and you get married and you have a few kids and that's what life is. But looking back, that was pivotal. The fact that my parents spent so much time saving money, which I hated during the course of my childhood because I wanted fancy things and we wanted to go on holidays. But it did enable me to get from Karachi to Montreal and then a scholarship to study at the London School of Economics in London, where I was actually born. Also, perhaps being born in London, because that gave me an edge, because it gave me a British passport. And that's very valuable for those of us belonging to the global south, a passport that allows us to travel without restrictions. A couple of pivotal moments there. And the third one, perhaps, would be moving to Afghanistan for work. Again, a couple of suitcases and some boxes later, I was in Kabul. And that was pivotal, not because of the journey it's taken me to, but that's where I met my husband, who is Italian. So thus, a girl growing up in the middle class in Karachi goes to Montreal, London, Kabul, and then diving board to the world. And having my children was also pivotal in different senses. It continues to be pivotal. I think that never (laughs) stops. So here we are. Oh, my goodness. You are a representative of the world. You've been so many places. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's talk about these parents who were big savers. When you were growing up, as they were saving their money, how did they share with you what they were doing and why? Did you talk about money? How did this even enter into the conversation, if at all? I think we talked too much about money, in my opinion. When I was little, my father, he's since then passed away. My father was a barrister. He studied in England. He was born in Kenya, and he was a barrister at law. And my mother, she's a gynecologist. So I come from two very highly educated parents. Again, not common in my setup. 
And my father liked to do a budget every month. And then my mother would always be over budget. And there were lots of arguments. And I hated to talk about money. And I still don't like to talk about money. It scares me. I don't like doing budgets. I don't like to see where everyone goes in the red. But it was a monthly childhood conversation. And the family also looking at my father. They actually would call him stingy, but he would call himself economical. (laughs) And looking back, I think he could have been a little bit more flexible. And I try that with my own family, with my own children. But in those days in Pakistan, the man had the power over the money. It's a very patriarchal society where the women, even highly educated ones like my mum, the man is the center of the household. Your success as a woman is measured not by your career, your education, perhaps a little bit, but not completely. But it's the fact that can you get three hot meals on the table? My mother was as accomplished but she had some mental health issues. So my father then was the main breadwinner and thus made more of the money decisions. I'm very conscious of that. So we try and balance it out where I think I'm a bit of the wild one in our family. (laughs) But yeah, that's just a little bit about how it was growing up and the focus on money. And I do appreciate him saving so much because I definitely would not have been where I am today if he didn't have that money to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for my education. You were saying that your parents argued a lot around this monthly budgeting time period. Were you aware that your parents were saving so much money for your education as you were growing up? Yes. How did those conversations go with you? I was aware of it. I didn't think it was a conversation. I think it was just the fact that we are saving money because you need to go abroad to study. So there is that expectation set. How did you feel about that expectation as a young person? For me, it was just normal. Like That's all I had ever heard, that I was going to go abroad to study. And so I didn't question it because I was told that from such a young age that it was just normal for me. That's what was going to happen. So you had that expectation. You were witness to a lot of arguments around money. You didn't like talking to money. You arrive in Montreal with two suitcases. How did you navigate your financial life during college? Oh, gosh. The first time I opened a bank account, Bank of Montreal, I remember standing in the queue to open up a bank account. I got a checkbook. I remember my first telephone bill. I called my parents the first time. I think just the call to my parents, because I hadn't gotten on one of those sprint plans, was like $200. Oh, Yeah, I didn't know what to do. And of course, coming from a different part of the globe, everything was so much more expensive. And I had friends who would go out for lunch all the time. And it was a $5 lunch, you know, nothing big. I can say that now. But at that time, I thought that is just mad. How are we going to do this? Because my father had said, be very careful with money. We don't have a lot. So I had this massive expectation to be very frugal, but not quite sure how to be frugal either. It was a very confusing time. The phone bills, I think, were my greatest expense. But then I learned to get onto this particular telephone plan and save 50% on calls to Pakistan and call on certain days. But the first day I was so excited to finally get a phone in my room. I didn't care. I just wanted to talk to my parents. And then of course, the end of the month, I would go to the dollar store and buy pot noodles. And at least the last five days would be pot noodles. And then we would get coupons at university, you know, buy two, get one free Burger King things. I think I put on a lot of weight eating all that fast food, (laughs) being really excited about it too. The first year was very tricky at university, but the second and third year, I was able to get a job on campus. So I used to work 40 hours a week. My father would pay tuition and I would pay my rent and everything else. So that gave me a bit more flexibility. I felt less guilty. 
we talk about the Catholic guilt always, but there's also the South Asian guilt, which is you brought up with it. You're supposed to do well. You must never get a nine on 10. It must be a 10 on 10 because your parents have worked so hard for you. And what are you doing? So it's money together with this South Asian guilt and expectations. A lot of pressure. Yeah. Lumna, you did say you don't like budgeting as a result of this upbringing, but this feels like a time where you had to budget or were you just guessing? What was your approach to how much money you need to make to get to the end of the month? And I was studying economics. So really, I should have been studying it and applying it. It's just two different things. Absolutely. And I'm a health economist today. So I've kept the economist role, but I'm still terrible with money. So I did some guesswork. And I used to work minimum 40 hours a week. I had a job at the library that was $6.50 an hour. But then I got a job at one of those little kiosks at university, which paid $9.50 an hour. And you could eat chocolate. You could just have chocolate there, which was fantastic. More money and chocolate. So then I would try and work less at the library and do more evenings at the kiosk. But I was working constantly and enjoying it. I mean, you know, it was a cashier or returning books. So it didn't feel like hard labor. But I didn't go out loads if I had to do more than just rent and groceries. It would put me in a bit of a panic. I didn't drink alcohol those days either. So that was a lot of savings. That's a savior. Yeah. The days I had to go to a club with friends, and that was a $20 entry, I did think about that. Also, my diet was awful. And I think it was because of the money. I think it's very interesting that you came from such a patriarchal family where your dad was in control of all the money. And as you're growing up, you're achieving financial independence for yourself in college at a very early age while balancing a lot of responsibilities. What was it like when you went to London next? That's a much more expensive city than Montreal. So London, I was on a scholarship and then I was working. So when I arrived in London, I was 100% financially independent and that was brilliant. It was really hard because my scholarship, they didn't wish to pay the whole full tuition. So I negotiated with them and I did my degree at the London School of Economics. Instead of a one-year full-time degree, I did a two-year part-time degree. So they paid my tuition just over two years. And then I worked four days a week. I would do classes one day a week. And that four days a week of work paid my rent and everything else. Even though I had lived in Montreal, I think I was still mentally a bit sheltered because I wasn't very ambitious. I think I could have gotten paid more money in London. But I wasn't ambitious enough to say, okay, I'm on a job which is quite boring and I'm not really happy with it. But I didn't use that time. I was so grateful to have that job. I didn't want to rock the boat. And I should have been more ambitious and continued to apply for other jobs that could have paid more. But such is life. And I was able to complete my degree with distinction. And then I started working in London. London is very expensive, but also I lived in zone one. So the zone one is the most central zone. And my colleagues and friends used to laugh. Lubna thinks if you go outside zone one, you fall off over the edge of the world. Because zone one was physically comforting, but also for religious reasons. I used to go and pray regularly at the Ismaili Center in South Kensington. And it was really important to me to be able to get to prayers. So I didn't care if I had a small room, but I wanted to be in zone one. So I lived in Earl's Court which is zone one and two border. And then I lived for the last two years in South Kensington. So near the Kensington Palace, wasn't neighbors with Princess Diana or nothing that cool, not far off neighbors. <laughs> I had a room and I shared with a lady from New Zealand and then an English lady. It was the perfect location. It was a muse house. So just super quaint and super London. 
and next to the museum and I could walk to prayers and walk back and I was in zone one. So life was very good, but I wouldn't have any money by the 28th of the month. My rent was high and I was going out and wasn't saving any money at all. It sounds like you were focused on the priorities of the time and making your life work for you based on the money that you were bringing in. And I'm curious, during this time when you were truly financially independent, what was your relationship like with your father? Did it change? My father was my North Star, always. He really believed in me. He trusted me. When I was at university, actually, in Canada and then in England, if I had any savings, I would send them to my brother, who was at college, at the College of Rooster in Ohio, because I know dad had used so much money for me. There was little bits left for Raheem. So where I could, I would save and send money to Raheem, not loads, but little bits and pieces when I could. Since then, my brother Raheem has done super well for himself, moved to Deloitte and then Toronto Dominion Bank. He's a banker and he's fantastic with budgets. I'm still a bit dodgy. (laughs) But yeah, my father, as I grew up, I think I understood the importance and I saw how hard he worked to make things happen. And of course, I guess everyone thinks their parents should have done something differently. And I still don't do budgeting like he does, even to this date. And I didn't and I haven't done budgeting in any of the countries. So London was fun. It was a beautiful time in life. And it's London, you know. You've got this amazing life there. What was the impetus then to move to Kabul? So I had done an undergraduate degree and I was working with a small British NGO called Health Unlimited, which is now called Health Poverty Action. And to be able to do better at what I was doing, I needed to work and live in the real world, the world where our clients lived. And I was particularly drawn to complex emergencies. And I did that as a little bit of study when I was doing my master's. So I just applied for a job in Afghanistan. It was a thing then, you know, Afghanistan, the Taliban had just left. It was when they were escorted out, to be polite. It was just a time I felt like a lot of people around me were moving to Afghanistan. And I had worked for an organization that worked with Afghan refugees. I was studying Persian at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. So yeah, I applied for a job and I got the job and it was more money. After every six weeks, they were going to give me R&R holiday. So they would pay $600 towards a ticket and 400 pocket money. I was going to get a salary that I was going to get tax-free because if you're a British citizen and you live outside the UK for a year, after that, you don't need to pay taxes in the UK. So it was also definitely a financial decision because the first time in my life when I moved to Afghanistan, I was saving money. The rent was covered by the organization. I got $150 monthly allowance to live on top of and a salary. It was fantastic. Sounds like you were kind of budgeting. (laughs) I don't know. Budgeting to spend, yes, (laughs) perhaps. I think my first salary was £27,500 and I was saving pretty much most of it. And that was exciting. I took my parents on holiday. We went to Sri Lanka in 2005. Beautiful five-star holiday. I had that, not just financial independence, but that little bit extra to be able to do that and start saving and putting away money. Sounds like a lot extra, actually, the way you (laughs) tell the story. And this is when you met your now husband. Indeed. What was the money story there, Lumna? With my husband. Yeah. When did did you guys get financially naked together? (laughs) (laughs) When I told my parents I wanted to marry Massimo, my mother actually asked me, how much does he earn? I was like, mother, I can't be asking these things because in my culture, you've got to make sure that your daughter is looked after. And that's really important. 
So my parents wanted to know how much money he made. And I had never asked him. He worked in the development sector. He used to work for the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance. So we were doing well, but we never sat down, him and I, and talked budgets. Because after Afghanistan, we moved to Madagascar, as one does. This is fantastic. (laughs) I want to plot this on the globe. I was following him and he was lucky enough to get contracts and work that paid a good salary and would pay our living. So any money that I earned was an extra. So I would pay for all our holidays. I was working for the UN then. I worked for UNICEF for a while and then for the World Bank. So we were doing financially really well between 2006 and 2010. Those were our years in Madagascar. Because we had no children, we were really able to save and put aside money. So those years in Madagascar were good financially. We didn't need to budget, so I wasn't scared or worried about budgeting. We had fantastic friends. It was really productive time in life. Career-wise, we were doing fantastically, and financially, we were doing well. So it sounds like your feelings of not wanting to have money conversations sort of worked out through your marriage. You're not really talking about it, but there's an understanding of what you're spending money on, what you're saving money for. Yeah, absolutely. And we always had separate accounts. In fact, the first time we got a joint bank account was last year. Tell us about that. This is fast forward. So from Madagascar, we moved to South Africa, to Zambia, to Tanzania, and then to Kenya. So all these different countries, I was following Massimo and his career and his work, and he was doing really well. And then from Tanzania, I was working with an organization that focused on HIV and integration of HIV within broader sexual and reproductive health and rights. But I wanted a change. I'd been with them for nine years. I'd had two children. I had done another master's degree at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So it was time I was following Massimo so I could still save. And we had managed to buy our flat in Verona, where he's from, and pay for the flat just pay it all off within a very short period of time, within a few years. And fast forward, we moved to Kenya for my work. I applied for a job and I currently work for the International Planned Parenthood Federation in their Africa regional office. I am the acting head of external relations and advocacy. And when I applied for this job and I got the job, the family followed me. So this is all very new to us. Massimo decided he was going to try and become a consultant. Often in these countries, it is very difficult to get work permits. So in Tanzania, I had applied for and paid for my own work permit, which was $3,000. But I was very lucky that I got the work permit. My work was willing to support me and I could continue to earn an income because many spouses in Tanzania were not in that position. For years, 20, 30, 40 years, just could not get a work permit. So it is very difficult to get work permits. But in Kenya, I have a work permit. And Massimo has a residence permit and he's consulting, but outside of Kenya. So we've got to always in countries where we live, be very careful and ensure we are following all the government regulations. And this also meant that the tables had turned a little bit. And that's when we opened up a joint bank account to work out how we were going to do this. Tell us about turning the tables. What was that like for the two of you after so many years of it being one way? It's quite exciting for me. It is actually very daunting as well because... It's not just the financial. When we move countries like this, the working spouse, our work permits, especially our ability to live in Kenya, all depends on me and my work. So any decisions I make about my career would have an impact on the whole family. We have two boys who are nine and six, and they're currently at school. So we can't just get up and leave because I don't like something or you've got to grow up rather quickly, I feel. 
because I feel that now. I feel that this pressure perhaps has a negative connotation, but I feel the seriousness of this. Now we budget. We have an Excel spreadsheet. I try not to look at it, to be quite (laughs) honest, because I still don't like it. But we've figured out on the basis, we've weighed our incomes and we've done a weighting. So based on that, we contribute to the household. So it's not 50-50, but we're also having these conversations. So my organization pays us an allowance for rent, but the house in which we live costs a lot more, but that is our decision. And the reason for that was because we wish to live in a house with a bit of a garden because we are in Kenya, it's beautiful. So then we said, okay, how much are we willing to go beyond that allowance? What is our rent going to look like? How important is that to us? Because this will mean less of other things. Food, you can't compromise on. You've got to eat. We have housekeepers. That cannot be compromised on, mostly because I hate washing dishes. (laughs) But also, on a more serious note, the housekeepers enable us to make sure the house runs and the kids are picked up from school and we can both work and travel. And then holidays. And of course, now it's four plane tickets and not just two plane tickets. So that had to be taken into consideration. Where Massimo used to work, they used to pay our tickets back to Italy every year. And now with my contract, I get tickets every other year. So this summer, for the first time, we had to pay our tickets to Europe. And they were about $4,500. It's shocking. Yeah. And we didn't have to do that before, which has now meant that we may not take the kids skiing to Europe in February, March, because we've got to adjust and think through what is needed same time, parents are getting older. So I support my mother financially as well. I have my parents-in-law, Massimo's an only child. So coming from the South Asian Italian, well, especially the South Asian background, women are not taught to be independent or live independently, which I think is such a flaw in our social system. So I I support my mother. And then of course, we do know that there may come a time where we may need to financially support also my parents-in-law. And of course, the kids are growing. They are going to go to university in Italy because it's free, (laughs) because we're not paying. So that's for sure. Or to France. So they're at the French school. So at least we're giving them some European options of where they can go study, but they're going to have to sort themselves out. We're not saving enough for that. We've given them a roof over their head in Italy. So they will, when we're no longer there, have that flat in Verona, which will be our retirement home. And now I am looking towards a savings goal. We were just talking about that, Massimo and I, like, I want to have a goal. In an ideal world, I want to buy a flat in Portugal, in Lisbon. I want that to be my goal and to have a flat where I can pay a mortgage so that I know that it's coming out like every month from my bank account. I like structure. So that would give me structure. If I just have to save, it's not going to go very well. You want a goal for that money, for that savings? Absolutely. That makes sense. Otherwise, it just feels like you're saving for saving's sake. This is an amazing transformation that you and your family have been journeying on for the last year or so. You talk about it with such confidence and reassurance that you know the purpose, that you have worked everything out. And I'm just curious, has it been easy for you and your husband especially as you've transitioned into your current situation? Nope, not easy at all. It's been quite hard for various reasons because I think to become a consultant, you've got to have a certain mindset. You've got to have a certain cutthroatness about you, to be quite honest. I was concerned and I used to tell Massimo, I'm not sure you are cutthroat enough to be this because you've got to be really dogged. And I am. And he's much kinder and much nicer than I am. But he's done really well these last few months. But as a consultant, it does take a couple of years to solidify your position where you decide what jobs you're going to take 
and what your daily rate is going to be. So at the beginning, I think one gets quite scared because you don't want to say no to anything because you really do not know where your next paycheck is coming from. So we are currently navigating that. And you're working together on that and talking about rates together? Rates together, but also travel. Where is he? How much travel does he need to do? And also the assurance that he needs to make his own way and decide what he wants to do without me being overpowering or imposing. So we do talk about daily rates and things like that, but also I just want to give him the space, but also the support. So it's the two-sided coin thing to make sure that he is able to do what he likes and he doesn't feel forced into taking up work just to pay the bills. So I keep saying, I make enough to pay the bills. We can just about survive on what I make because I want him to feel less of that pressure and enjoy what he does because I do enjoy what I do. We're having more money conversations than I would have liked, for sure. We were just last night talking, we're going to take a road trip to Tanzania and I want to go to this one national park and traveling in Eastern Africa is extraordinarily expensive. You can spend $1,000 per person per night at a safari lodge. It's madness. So the lodge I was looking at was going to be $950 per night for the four of us, all included. And this is resident rates. So if you're a foreigner, you pay even more. You can pay double or triple. So we were like, okay, how many nights can we afford here? Maybe a night, maybe two, you know, and I'm like, oh, let's go for two nights. And he was like, really? $2,000 for two nights? <laughs> so I'm more like, let's live in the moment. Let's enjoy it, which is why, Cami, I was saying, I need that goal. I need that money going out of my account because it will help keep me on the straight and narrow. Because currently I kind of go running into a field of dandelions, to be honest, get all excited about taking holidays in Ruha National Park. So yeah, need a bit of a goal. Lumina, as you're having more of these money conversations, are they getting easier for you? No, I really don't like talking about money, Sandy. I don't like looking at spreadsheets. You know, I just tell him, tell me how much and I'll just transfer money. Because if I can transfer money, then it's done. But if I have to sit and count, it's a thing for me. I really don't enjoy it. It's funny though, your language is different. So your money language isn't the numbers and the spreadsheets, but I'm hearing someone who's extremely comfortable talking about money and thinking about the rates you want to ask. And again, it's a different language you're using than the spreadsheet language. Perhaps and for work, one of my major responsibilities is fundraising and grants management. So I do look at money and I do look at cost efficiency and cost recoveries and public health financing, but it's because it's not mine, it's easier to talk about it. It's like a monthly resolution I have. And I think, okay, this month I'm going to get on top of my investments. I have money in the bank and I don't know, like I have an investment portfolio and I didn't look at it for so long. I forgot the password because <laughs> I know it's there and it's like fantastic. So it's not just the budgeting, it's any kind of money. And I'm like, oh, it's there. I know it's there. Let it be there. And every month I have a conversation or maybe every Monday I'm like, okay, this week, Lubna, this week you're going to be a bit more savvy. You're going to look at how much you're spending. You're not going to do this. But it's a work in progress, I'd like to say. Even though you don't really enjoy many conversations, what's your next one going to be and who's it going to be with? It's going to be with Massimo because we have not paid our housekeeper salaries because we're terrible and we keep forgetting. So after I speak to you guys, I'm going to sit and remind him that we need to pay all of the salaries and we are going to do that tonight. Fantastic. It sounds like a very important conversation. Absolutely. Lumna, I can't keep track of your degrees or all the places you've lived in. It's really been an amazing journey. I feel like I've gone on a trip in this conversation. Thank you for sharing so much. 
keep running in those fields of dandelion. I think you got something right. <laughs> and thank you for joining us on Money Tales. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.